Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to the Desert Breeze Community Church, as always. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 12. This is our MOVE teaching series. We are getting ready to make one of the biggest and most strategic moves in the history of Desert Breeze. But uh, more importantly, but more importantly, we want the gospel, we want God to move exponentially in our lives, then move contagiously out of our lives, making a dramatic difference in our, in our city here. And uh, that's what's most important. That's always been most important. It's, uh, we think buildings are, are good. They're a good thing, but they're not the ultimate thing for us. And... Uh, So we want God to move in our lives and out of our lives, making an impact in our city. And you know that the gospel, God's love, is on the move in your life when you are a living sacrifice. We talked about it last weekend. And in fact, let me read the the, kind of the key verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of all that God has done for us. He's appealing to us based on that. He spent the first... 11 chapters in Romans talking about that. And then we, this verse is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a what? A living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, uh, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's just a, it's a smart way to live, to live for God and to live all of your life, every breath that you take for Him. And so we talked about that last week. And now we're going to talk about how do we know that the gospel is moving out of our lives. It's come into our lives. It's invaded our hearts. We become a living sacrifice. And uh, because, and that's all based on the mercies of God. God is amazing in every way to us. And so we're beginning to understand that more clearly. And now how do we know that the gospel is on the move out of our lives? Romans 1.16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so you know that the gospel is beginning to move out in and through your life because you you realize that it is the most, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so life-liberating, so soul-satisfying, breathtakingly beautiful that you'll want everyone you care about to experience it. That's how you know that it's beginning to move out of your life. And once it's invaded your heart, you are so captivated by his beauty that you want everybody that you care about to know about this relationship you have with God so that they can have this same relationship. When the gospel of Jesus Christ gets a hold of you, you're consumed with the desire to grow in it well, that would be the gospel on the move in your life to grow in it and then to tell others about it. That's the gospel on the move out of your life. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Three things we're looking at this morning. What is this gospel power? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power. What is this gospel power? Who are the bearers of this gospel power? That would be you and I if we've indeed put our faith in Jesus. And then where do we get this gospel power? How do we keep our hearts filled up with this gospel power? That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray. We'll dive into our text. It's a wonderful text we're looking at this morning there in First Peter. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel. 
for it is the good news of what you have done through the sacrificial love of your Son, our Savior, Jesus, to make us right with you, that we can have a relationship with you. That is amazing. We are blown away by that. And nothing is more life-liberating and soul-satisfying than the transforming power of the gospel. Father, show us wonderful things from your word. Show us wonderful things of your word of what this gospel power is, the importance of us being bearers of it, and how we can keep our hearts filled up with it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text. And I begin reading the second chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. We'll read down to verse 12. As you come to him, the him is Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. He's using this as kind of a metaphor. He's speaking kind of metaphorically in the sense that we are a temple. We are the temple of God to be a holy priesthood. So we are priests to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's what priests did in the temple, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to, what's that word? Shame. That's a pretty powerful word there. Will not be put to shame. Man, all the acceptance, significance, and security that you need can be found in this cornerstone. And you'll never be put to shame. You put your faith in Him. That's a, that's a heavy statement that He just made there. You will not be put to shame. You'll never be embarrassed. You'll have a sense of confidence and courage in life. You will have a sense of, of contentment and completeness in life. You will not be put to shame. The reason why we're put to shame is oftentimes we're not living in the reality of what he's saying here. So the honor is for you. So he's talking about this place of honor. This place of honor. It's not a more honorable place than to be called a child of God. No, it wasn't the promotion you got or the job you got or any number of things uh, that you think that has brought you honor. Uh, this is the most honorable thing, is that we would be called a child of God, that we're children of God. We put our faith in this cornerstone. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Still speaking about Jesus. And, verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. Oh, I love this next verse. This, is, this next verse is one worth memorizing. All of them are worth memorizing, but this one especially. Listen to what it says. This is speaking about your identity. If you have any identity issues, we all typically do, let it be... Uh, uh, transformed this morning by this verse, the next couple of verses actually. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh my goodness. I could sit, I could sit before a fireplace this morning and drink my favorite beverage coffee 
and just meditate on that verse right there. I mean, that would just, that is such a rich verse. If you took through, went through the implications of that and just begin to apply those specifics to your life. I mean, you could, you could face anything. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. You just walk, walk through the implications of, of that you have been, if you have put your faith in Jesus, he has taken you from darkness into light and the implications of light. You have purpose, you have significance, you have direction, you have hope. Your sins are forgiven. Your present problems can be managed because he indwells you. Your future is secure. Oh my goodness, that's awesome. Out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the more you realize that, you're going to declare his excellencies. You're going to proclaim them. See, the more you realize that, the more you want to proclaim. See, that's when you know that uh, the gospel is, is not just working in you, but it's coming out of you to, to the world. You're wanting to declare his excellencies. And then once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, in other words, he's just saying, hey, this isn't your home. This place is not your home. Don't get too comfortable in exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Don't get too comfy here, okay? That's what he's saying. Don't get too comfortable and don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul is what he's saying. It's, that's kind of the way the message puts that. And then he goes on, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. He's talking about unbelievers. Honorable. In other words, let your behavior refute their prejudices against you or against Christians. Live in such a way, and then he's going to say, in, in such a way that it, it makes Christ look glorious as he is. That he puts him on display so that they will want to put their faith in him also. As he, as he says, when they speak against you as evildoers. Let me read the whole verse. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So first of all, what is gospel power? I've got a number, a kind of a, a list. It's a short list just to kind of walk you through this because when you read any text, you always have to read it in the fuller context of that uh, book. When these were written, they, they did not have chapters and verses, and they were meant to just read through this, this letter from Peter. And so the, the context is the gospel. The context is the gospel, and you see that, and, and then I'll look at the fuller context, the scriptures, all of the scriptures. But uh, let me kind of walk through some of these illustrations. Uh, what is gospel power? Things into which angels long to look. He says that in First Peter chapter 1. So part of the background of what we're talking about here is the gospel. And he's saying that angels long to look. This word long to look literally is what he says there in First Peter chapter 1 verse 12. It means a supreme passion. And uh, that's, that's what the long means. Uh, Epithumia, which is uh, uh, an epi-passion, a strong, over, really a controlling passion of your life. To look means, the word means up close, to gaze upon the gospel. And this means that there is no end to gospel exploration. If you're saying to me, oh, I've heard that before. Oh, that's just the gospel. <laughs> Not just the gospel. You haven't heard it before. 
The depth, the height, the width, the length, the breadth of the gospel is amazing. You'll never plummet the height, the depth, the width of it. You'll never really fully, completely uh, grasp it. If angels who are a whole lot smarter than us and have been around a whole lot smarter than us long to look into the gospel, even more so should we. Here's the next one. The imperishable seed in which we are born again. He says that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. So it gives you a little bit of the context. He's just saying that this gospel message is like this a seed. It's an imperishable seed that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, it is so powerful that it makes us born again. We become transformed. It transforms our lives. Next one. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We've read that before, talked about that. I quoted it at the very beginning of our study. Romans 1, 16 through 17. So there's this power working in our lives. Paul confronts Peter's racism, calling it inconsistent with the gospel in Galatians 2, 14. So I'm just giving you some glimpses of this gospel power. This is what Paul uh, says to Peter. I saw his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So it's our desire to always have all of our conduct, everything that we say and do, to be in step with the gospel. Another point here, next one, it's a great equalizer giving confidence to the poor and humbling the rich, this gospel power. And uh, James 1, verses 9 through 10, James talks about how this gospel power is this great equalizer in that even in, in their day, as in our day, affluence, money, was the bottom line identity. And so people with a lot of money, they feel big. People with very little money feel small. And when the gospel comes in, the gospel basically says you're more sinful than you ever dared to think. So no matter how much money you have and how big you feel, you're leveled. You're humbled by that because no amount of money can ever get you into uh, the kingdom of God. And so that humbles the rich, but what does it do to the poor? The poor, because they based it on the bottom line identity as money, it, it elevates the poor because they say, wait a minute, that's not my identity. My identity is that I'm a child of God. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. So the gospel has that power. It's the great equalizer. Also, we see in uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4, divisions in the church are inconsistent with the gospel. So if there's divisiveness, it's obvious that people are not living consistent with the gospel and the power of the gospel. Paul motivates people to be generous and husbands to love wives with the gospel. And this is just a short list of the power of the gospel and how it works in our lives. And so we see that, that he motivates people to be generous. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. And when you understand that, you become generous. And then obviously, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5.21. So here's the point. Here's what I'm getting at. It's the next uh, fill in the blank here. To the degree you take the gospel into the center of your life is to the degree it will bring radical life change to every out area of your life. How many of you are familiar with the, uh, the parable of the seed, the soil, and uh, the sower? Are you familiar with that? Isn't it interesting? The seed would represent the gospel. The sower could be someone like myself, or it could be the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And the soils would represent what? Anybody have an idea what the soils represent? Our heart. Okay. Good answer. So it represents our heart. And so you, when you read through that, you'll notice that the seed, there's seed that falls on the hard the hard ground, the hard ground that, that people had 
walked on, so it doesn't go deep into the heart, down into the soil. And then you've got the, uh, you've got the uh, one that falls among the rocks, so it doesn't go deep enough. And then you've got that which drops, but, it's, but it, there's a lot of thorns that grow up that choke it out. But it's all about the gospel going deep within our lives. And, uh, and that's the verses that I put there, Mark 4, 1 through 20, talk about that parable. Matthew 6.21, you probably should know that because I quote it a lot. Anybody have an idea of what 6.21 is? Where your, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, so if the gospel is your treasure, then it's going to capture your heart. It's going to get a hold of your heart. It's going to transform your life. And getting that deep into your heart, making the gospel your treasure. Here's the point. Let me give you some illustrations here. Better parenting isn't about focusing on techniques as much as focusing on how our heavenly father parents rebels like us. That's the gospel. Okay, you can learn all the techniques in the world, but until your heart is ravished by the fact that how he treats you, you rebel you, and he loves you and pursues you, and you begin to see how he he endears your heart to him, then you'll become a better parent. Here's another illustration also, it's not sermons against greed, but seeing more clearly the generosity of the Father giving His Son that makes us more generous. When I'm captivated by what God has done for me through giving of His Son, then I'm going to be more generous. It's not more lectures on being, you know, you're just so greedy and, and more of a really working your morality, working over your morality, it's really about your heart, deeper in your heart. Here's another illustration. It's not marriage seminars that make better spouses as much as being ravished by the spousal love of Jesus for his bride. When you see, and that's what he's saying in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, when you see Jesus and how he cares for his bride, then husbands, you'll do the same. And so... How would you, uh, in fact, let's do this. Let's, uh, let me have you discuss it with the people sitting next to you because you need to know this as a believer. But let's say you have a friend that comes to you and they're in unbelievable despair over the loss of a job. How would you help them through that? What would be some of the things that would be really important for you to do uh, to help them kind of sort through that and kind of get realigned and reoriented? Uh, to who Jesus is. Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. I'll give you just a 30 seconds to a minute. <clears throat> you guys coming up with some good answers to that? So, so what would you do? The tendency for us, the tendency is for us to focus on, on the person's thoughts. You know, oh, you're thinking negative thoughts? Don't think negative thoughts. That's bad, okay? Be positive, and that's probably okay, but the problem is, is it doesn't go deep enough. Or you might focus on their feelings. Yeah, I was laid off too, and I have, I've had problems in the past, and I feel for your brother or sister. And, and so on. that's cool, but that doesn't go deep enough. Or you might say, hey, just buck up. That deals with the will. So you can deal with the, uh, anybody say that? Just buck up? Just suck it up? Okay, okay. There's a couple of, of you out there. Just suck it up. Well, and that's, that's good. I won't call you when I'm in need. But... Uh, <laughs> Because uh, it's got to go much deeper than that. It's got to get down to the gospel level. And here's what the gospel level is. To deal with despair, you must go deeper than thoughts, feelings, actions, and ask what is operating in the place of Jesus as Savior that is letting you down. 
And I'm going to talk about it in just a minute. There's a major difference between being sorrowful and having despair. You guys know what I'm talking? It's, you're going to be sorrowful when you lose a good thing, but if that good thing has become an ultimate thing, it's graduated to becoming ultimate in your life, you're not just going to be sorrowful. You're going to be in despair. It's, you're going to be un, inconsolable. And all you're telling me is that you have overly attached your heart to that. The only person you overly attach your heart to is Jesus. And if you do that, you give him your heart, then you'll be able to, you'll be able to endure the difficulties of life, sustain you know, the, the hits and the things you go through. But so that's just kind of giving you a little indication. So you've got to ask, let me say the question again. You have to ask, what is operating in the place of Jesus, the Savior, that is letting you down? We tend to do that. Now, there's, I'm just, that's just the power of the God. You get the gospel deep in your life, and I'm telling you, everybody look up here. You can face anything. You get the gospel deep in your heart. You begin to understand who Jesus is. He's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You will proclaim the excellencies of God even in hard, difficult times because you have a buoyancy in your life, a hope. You have a joy. You have peace. You have his love. That's a fact. That's the truth based on God's word. And Jesus died to give us those things. Okay? Now... That's the power of the gospel. Who are the bearers of gospel power? Here's the the next fill in the blank for you. Who are the the bearers of this gospel power? Christians are smaller versions of Christ, the ultimate temple, priest, and sacrifice. You've got three fill in the blanks there. And and we saw that in verses 4 and 5. Did you notice that? Primarily in verse 5, he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, so he's speaking of a temple, he's giving us this imagery, a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood, your priest, to offer spiritual sacrifices. So, so before Christianity came, every religion in the world had temples. Why did they have temples? Because everyone knew there was a chasm that separated us from God that needed to be bridged. Human beings are small and, uh, and sinful. God is big and holy. How are we going to bridge that gap, that chasm? Well, we're going to do it in temples, by priests, through sacrifices. You look in the Old Testament. They were doing that. The problem is that many of them were doing the, that in their own way, and they didn't do it based on what God had prescribed as a picture of Jesus, who was the ultimate temple priest sacrifice, and then we are to also uh, follow Jesus. As we said in that point, is that Christians are smaller versions of Christ, the ultimate temple priest and sacrifice. So in the New Testament, many called the Christians atheists because they had no temples, priests, or sacrifices. They say, so you believe in God? Yeah. So where's your temple? Don't have one. Where's your priest? Don't have one either. What do, you, do you guys make sacrifices? Nope, not at all. And they actually believed that they were just atheists. They called them atheists. Christians proclaimed the chasm is gone because Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice, bridging the gap between us and God. And uh, Jesus, because he's the ultimate temple priest and sacrifice, and what was so revolutionary about the first century Christians is that uh, they, they said that to people. Hey, we don't need temple priest sacrifice. We can go right to God through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And in fact, as believers in Jesus Christ, 
We are smaller versions of temple priests and sacrifices. In fact, we know that we are temple of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19, it says we're the temple of God. We're the dwelling place of God. Now think about that. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And then there's a dynamic of his presence when a whole bunch of us get together. There's a dynamic of his presence that you can experience. You're not going to be able to, with a bunch of other Christians, you're not going to be able to experience out there by yourself. And that we are also priests. Priests are those that kind of go between God and man. So they go to God to represent man and go to man to represent God. And so we're kind of that, we're to be... uh, we have the ministry of reconciliation. That's what it means, the fifth chapter of Second uh, Corinthians, that we help people to see God more clearly and bring God to people. That's what he's talking about. And then, of course, we learned last week, Romans 12, 1, that we are a living sacrifice so that we don't live for our will based on our desires. We, we live for him, and we've never been more fulfilled and fruitful and satisfied because life isn't about us. It's about him. It's a wonderful way to live, living sacrifice. And so that's what he's getting at, and that's the imagery. So who are the bearers of gospel power? We, we are believers, and we are a temple priest and sacrifice. That's what he's getting at here. And then here's the next one. Christians are smaller versions of Christ, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king prophet, priest, and king. So in the Old Testament, when you study through the Old Testament, um, it was interesting that these were the kind of, these were the leaders, the, the spiritual leaders of that day. And in the Old Testament, the people were passive and experts were active in ministry. And then the New Testament and Jesus came along making every believer a minister. And so we are to be prophet, priest, and king. Look at verse 9, if you still have your Bible open. But you are a chosen race, a royal. The word royal speaks of our being kings. Priesthood, speaking of priest, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim. This is what priest would do. Or no, I'm sorry, uh, prophets, kind of speaking imagery of, of prophets. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his into his marvelous light. So every Christian is royal, kingly, priesthood, priest, proclaim the excellencies of him, prophet. And what is ministry about? So if you're a prophet, priest, king, so not only are you using this imagery, a temple priest sacrificed to be a living sacrifice, you are also a prophet, priest, king. So what is ministry about? Ministry is about helping people to take the gospel in. So what do prophets do? Prophetic ministry speaks the gospel in, instructing and teaching and sharing. Priestly ministry loves the gospel in, encouragement and counsel. Kingly ministry is leading it in, holding people accountable. So God has called us to do all three of those. So you are to... To be one who receives the gospel ministry. We come together to receive the gospel ministry so that you can give gospel ministry by being a prophet, priest, king. You proclaim the excellencies of God. That's a prophet. You're speaking the gospel. What does a priest do? Loves the gospel and ministers to people, brings God to people. And then as a king, you hold people accountable. You challenge people. You lead them. 
That's what God has called us to do. That's part of our identity as, as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, let's make this uh, more applicable to our lives. What would that look like? We do this best two ways, by a holy life and an open mouth, or by show and tell. Everything I need to know about evangelism I learned in kindergarten, show and tell. I'm going to show through a holy life. So the holy, you are a holy nation. That's what he's talking. The holy means different. That you may proclaim, there's the open mouth. So you show and tell. Now when you study the, the early church, first century church, there were certain characteristics that caused them to stand out. Let me go through those. The early church were characterized by these. I think they're on your notes. Integrity, generosity, hospitality, sympathy, handling adversity, chastity, and seeking equity. Let me go through those very quickly. This is part of this holy life. So if Christ, the gospel, has invaded your life, this is what your holy life will look like. Integrity is honest and fair in your dealing with others. Are you honest and fair in dealing with others? How about generosity? Not just employers to employees, but also to neighbors. And then hospitality. They were known for bringing neighbors and poor into their home. And then their sympathy. Never vindictive, always ready to forgive and reconcile. And then handling adversity. They always handled suffering. Let me ask you this. How do you deal with suffering? That puts on display one way or the other where, you're, where you've put your faith, hope, and love in. But they were able to handle suffering unbelievably that people they would turn their heads and go, wow, what's this about? What do you have that I don't have? And then chastity. No sex outside of marriage and fidelity inside of marriage. That really turned their heads, even in that culture. That would turn heads in our culture. And then seeking equity, well known for caring about the common good and equity of the community. So let me ask you this. Are we known for these characteristics as Christians here in America? Are you known for these characteristics? We should be famous for these characteristics, that holy life. Here's what... uh, a couple of uh, dead guys said about that. C.S. Lewis and J.C. Ryle. C.S. Lewis said this, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. J.C. Ryle put it this way, People may refuse to see the truth of our arguments, but they cannot evade the evidence of a holy life. Okay. So holy life, show, and then an open mouth, open mouth, tell, proclaim the excellencies of him. Let me give you some illustrations here, a couple of illustrations, a little swig of the coffee here. It's still cold, cold coffee. While I'm up here, I drank hot coffee all week, but up here, cold. Keeps me cool. Um, this is actually out of a book that we're going to be uh, covering with our leadership, Center Church, and it's also a book that I don't know if you saw in the bulletin, but there's the Dead Theologians Society is changing to Alive in Christ Center Church Society, which is a phenomenal book. Basically, it just uh, talks about doing balanced gospel-centered ministry in your city. And he, uh, he gives a few examples here in this book. And let me just read to you some of these examples. What does this look like? Holy life, open mouth. 
Jerry is asked by his work colleague, Bill, how his weekend went. Jerry relates that he went on a men's retreat that provided spiritual resources for, for forgiving people who have wronged us over the years. When Bill raises his eyebrows and says, that's interesting, Jerry takes a small plunge and mentions that the thing that helped him most was the idea that even though he has not given God his due, God offers him forgiveness through Jesus. So you can just see just the little subtle ways that God, within our circle of influence and touch, in our neighborhood, where we work, in our own homes, with our families. Here's another one. Dan and Jill help their two sons, ages five and seven, with scripture memorization and teach them a simple catechism. Just kind of a little Bible study is what, if you're not familiar with what the word catechism. They filled the boys' questions and helped them understand the meaning of the text they are studying. That's, that's a holy life, open mouth, just with your own kids. Here's another one. Sally gets to know a young woman named Clara at church. Clara confides that she and her husband are having marriage problems, and he isn't willing to go to a counselor. Sally and her husband... Jeff invite Claire and Sam over for a meal. Sam hits it off with Jeff. Afterward, Claire convinces Sam to meet with Jeff and Sally to talk about their marriage issues. They meet together once a month for four months studying Ephesians 5 and several other biblical texts on marriage. Simple as that. Holy life, open mouth. Uh, And I've got a number. Let me just read a couple more. Fred has been attending a small group for months. At one point, he realizes that he assesses the value of the group strictly on what he gets out of it. He then decides to begin preparing preparing well, studying the passage, and praying for the group. When he comes, he looks for every opportunity to help the Bible study leader by making good contributions and for ways to speak the truth in love so others are encouraged and helped to grow. Hint, hint, if you're part of a small group. Catherine prays for her friend Megan for months. Megan responds well to two short books on Christian subjects that Catherine has given her. She then invites Megan to an evangelistic event in which Christian truth is presented. On the way home, she fields Megan's questions. One more. Greg comes to faith in Christ through a a skeptics or seeker group hosted by a church. When the date for his baptism is set, he invites a number of non-Christian friends to the service and then takes them out for lunch and discusses the whole event. One friend is very moved by the experience. Greg invites him to come back. Eventually, the friend begins coming to his small group with him. I mean, that's just a few examples. So think about your life. Think about the people that God has strategically placed around you so that through your holy life and open mouth, you can proclaim the excellencies of God. Um, just look at the bulletin. We've got so many events. If you've never gone through Game of Life, you need to go through Game of Life. Not because I teach it, but because it's very foundational. It'll help you to really understand a little bit more about what Desert Breeze is about. It'll give you a rock-solid faith. And in fact, if you know, maybe you haven't gone through it, but you know a young believer that's kind of wavering in their faith, this is perfect for them. Bring them with you to the Game of Life class. Take the class. Maybe you've already gone through Game of Life. You're looking for something more. There's a class that just kicked off. It's a foundations class. It, it, goes, it takes you through the essentials of the Christian faith. Take them to that class. Um, 
Having marriage problems? You know somebody that's having marriage problems. Call them up. Say, hey, let's go to the marriage class. That's what you need to go. We've got the marriage class that's kicking off this next Friday. It's a great class taught by the Trucellas. They've taught this for many years. They have a lot of experience in this class. Um, what else do we have? I mean, we've got all kinds of stuff going on here. Alive in Christ Center Church Society. You can get that also through our leadership. Uh, women's ministry, true woman. Man, I'm telling you, uh, there's a, a lot of confused women in our society today. They don't understand what it means to really follow Jesus and to, uh, to be godly. And so that's, a, that's another great class. Uh, if you're feeling adventure, uh, adventurous, want to meet people, this epic, that's a perfect one to bring unchurched non-Christians to. It's an ideal group to, to hang out with. And uh, so there's just there's so many different opportunities that we provide for you uh, through a lot of the events, through our small groups. If you're not plugged into a small group, start thinking about that. That would be your beginning. Those are just a few examples. So, okay, now let's wrap this up. Where do you get gospel power? Where do you get gospel power? We're right on time. They didn't put the clock up here for me, so I have to keep going over and looking at the clock. So where do you get the gospel power? So we've looked at... What is the gospel power? It will transform our lives. We are to be bearers of that. So we are to receive gospel ministry and then give gospel ministry. Where do we get it? How do we keep our hearts filled up with it? Jesus must become the cornerstone of your life. Twice we see that word cornerstone in verses 6 and 7. Cornerstone. Anybody know what a cornerstone is? Turn to the person next to you real quick and see if they know what a cornerstone is. If you've been around the, the church for long enough, you probably know what it is. Not real common these days. Real quick. Okay, how many said that the cornerstone was the stone that was placed in the corner? That's a good answer. It was, a, it was actually a critical stone in the corner of the foundation that ensures that a stone building was, listen to me, it was square and it was stable. Now, this is interesting, the, the idea, the implications of that are just pretty phenomenal. Not only square, square meaning, do you know where you're going? Do you know what the purpose of life is? Do you have a sense of, of significance and security? And, and you have a sense of that, that just, that's the foundation for your life, that everything in your life comes back to this. You can't call something crooked unless you have a straight edge somewhere. What is your straight edge? Everybody has a straight edge, but is your straight edge based on what God says? So what, is, so what is it you keep coming back to? What is your source? And then, and then if you have Christ as your cornerstone, he's the one that you follow, oh my goodness, what unbelievable stability you're going to have for your life when the storms hit. When the storms hit your life. Uh, so that's what the cornerstone did. How do I know he's my cornerstone? Matthew 7 talks about the person who built his house upon the rock. Who was the person that built his house upon the rock? This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. The person that built his house upon the rock was the one that, that heard Jesus, heard his teaching, and applied it to his life. But the one who had built his, his house, his life, upon the sand was the one that heard the teaching but didn't apply it. He heard the teaching. He didn't apply it. And when the storms came... Not if the storms, but when the storms came. The storms are coming. Some of you have already experienced storms. You're going to have storms in your life. How do I know that he's the cornerstone? You better know before the storms hit. 
We're going to t- talk about that, what that, how you can know before the storm's hit. But you can tell in storms, and I can always tell when people are in storms, what's their cornerstone, or if they have a cornerstone. And uh, you know by how they respond to the storms of life. If your marriage, your finances, your parenting, your job is your cornerstone, and when any of those things are threatened, and that those are all good, but if that good thing has become an ultimate thing and it's being threatened, you're not just going to be anxious, you're going to be paralyzed with fear. If any of those things are your cornerstone and they're blocked, and those things have gone from a good thing to an ultimate thing, you're not just going to be angry, you're going to become bitter. There's a guy that lives down the street from us, bitter, cranky, old man. We were talking about him the other day and just saying, wow, why would somebody get so bitter and cranky? And what we kind of came to the conclusion with is that he has a whole lot of hurts in his life that he's never recovered from and a whole lot of bitterness and a whole lot of blocked goals and a lot of things that were good things but became ultimate things and he's angry about those things and he's stockpiled all those things in his heart and now he wants to take it out on all the neighbors isn't that interesting and so if if your marriage, finances, parenting, job, add whatever you want to that list is your cornerstone and it is lost and that cornerstone is a good thing that has become an ultimate thing, you're not just going to be sad. You're going to be in despair. You will be inconsolable. You guys tracking with me? So look at your inordinate emotions and how you respond to the events of life. It's pretty, pretty significant. So that's kind of how that... And so Jesus must become the cornerstone of your life. He becomes your cornerstone when he is more valuable than all else. He uses this word precious two times. I, I always think of the, the movie when I use that word precious. You guys know what movie I'm talking about? Should I mention it? Yeah. But it's, I, always, I don't know why. It's just I think it's kind of deep in my... It's that, uh, What's the name of that movie anyway? Lord of the Rings. Okay, yeah. So, it, but, but this is not the same kind of precious in the sense, obviously, but precious two times, speaking of Jesus, verses 4 and 6. I used to drink international coffee. You guys know what international coffee is? It's a little, little can, and you put a couple scoops in hot water until I had a caramel macchiato. And that uh, international coffee? I mean, once you've had a... Caramel macchiato, a, a, a mocha. And we've got our own little Starbucks machine at home where it gives us unbelievable shots. I would never drink that international coffee. I mean, it just, once you do that, how many, you know, when they had the holiday coffees out, how many, anybody like eggnog lattes? Anybody like uh, eggnog? It's good stuff, yeah. Uh, it'll it'll harden your arteries, okay? But uh, other than that, it's really good. But uh, how many are old enough here? There's a few of you. I can look around and see that you're old enough. How many remember when black and white TVs and all of a sudden you got your first color TV? Anybody remember that far back? You guys are old, man. And some, some here are going, black and white, what's that? What's a black and white TV? And what's interesting, we went from, and, and remember we used to, in my home, when one would break down, we just pile the other one on top of that one. Isn't that goofy? And then I couldn't believe it when we finally got a color TV. And then they would actually advertise, in color. Woo-hoo, this show's in color. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. And now it's what? It's HDTV, and there's probably more to it than that. 
Anybody have one of those? Do you still have those big uh, tube? Big tube TVs? Anybody still have tube TVs? Come on, get up with the... Now it's all flat screen. It's HD TV. Anybody still with black and white? What? You gotta be kidding. That's messed up. I'll pray for you when we get finished here. Hey, here's, here's the point that I'm making. You're saying, what's the point, Pastor Ray? When you come into the presence of exceptional quality, superlativeness, nothing compares, nothing competes. Now listen to me. When you come into the presence of Jesus, exceptional quality, superlativeness, nothing compares, nothing competes, nothing completes you like him. Do you see him like that? Is he more beautiful and valuable and desirable than all else? Because if he isn't, it's probably because you're not a believer. Man, I I invite you to him, to see him in his majesty and his glory. Or you're not feeding yourself with the gospel regularly enough. Because when you, when you begin to, when, you, when he becomes precious to you, more valuable. In fact, uh, Philippians 3.8, Paul says, everything is worthless when compared with the priceless value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So, so Jesus becomes your cornerstone. You're unshakable, but how does he become your cornerstone? He becomes more valuable than all else. See, let me explain what this means. So... So when he becomes more valuable, more desirable than all else, um, the things that used to charm you and control you no longer do. Your job, you lose your job, it doesn't control your life. It's a job. You're going to look for another job. He loves you. He's your provider. He takes care of you. Does that make sense? So those things don't charm you and control your life anymore. They're important. They're good things. Thank God for them. But he's your everything. Here's the next one. How does he become your everything? He is more valuable than all else when you understand that he was rejected so that you might be accepted by God. You see that in verse 7. He says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And we know that his rejection was that of being on the cross. So he was rejected so that you might be accepted. Psalm 21, 22, 1, it says when Jesus was on the cross. He was speaking prophetically here, the psalmist. He's speaking prophetically. And when Jesus was on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that though you may feel forsaken, you never really are. You never are. In fact, Another cross-reference, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8.31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? If he took care of our worst problem, which was our separation from him, he'll take care of all of our other problems. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word and how it so nurtures us. It nourishes our soul. It brings satisfaction to us. God, we have feasted 
our hearts upon the gospel this morning, and we see that the gospel is unbelievably powerful to transform our lives, and you have called us to be bearers of this gospel. And God, may we, may we be prophets who speak the gospel and priests who love the gospel and kings who lead the gospel into other people's lives. But God, we know that for us to be able to do that, you must be the cornerstone of our lives. God, we want you to be our everything more valuable to us than anything else. And God, you become that valuable to us when we understand that you were rejected so that we might be accepted. How can we come to grips with someone giving himself utterly for us without us giving ourselves utterly for him? We give ourselves completely and totally to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? So let me pronounce this verse over us as a, as a benediction, words of encouragement. And this is God speaking to us once again this morning. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And may that be true about all of us here at Desert Breeze who call upon the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. God bless you.